Well, one of the things that we do at Christmas time is we uh, send Christmas cards to, to one another. How many of you have uh, sent Christmas cards this year? Yeah, fewer and fewer each year. It's like uh, we didn't get to it this year either. I can't raise my hand just with a lot of things going on, but we did receive a lot. One of our favorites are those that we receive with pictures on them. And I would say this year our favorite, or at least the vote that I would give, I haven't polled our family yet, but, but our favorite Christmas card this year is this one. Yeah, right? Y'all know Jonathan and Kayla. If you don't know Jonathan, he's, he is our uh, student pastor. And uh, this is more than a Christmas card, right? This is a birth announcement or a pregnancy announcement. Um, so we can, you know, we can do without the Clemson stuff. But other than that, you see the little, you see the little baby uh, Mitchell that is growing there in, in her womb. So that's what we do when we have a kid or when we're, when we're pregnant when, or when your wife is pregnant, when you're expecting, right? As we tell everyone, we announce it because we're excited about it. God's done a great thing and we want other people to know. Well, the birth announcement for Jesus that we find in Luke chapter 2 is no different. This is a birth announcement that God has sent his son Jesus to the world. That's what we find in Luke chapter 2. The angel appears to the shepherds as they're keeping watch over their flocks on the hillside outside of Bethlehem, and they announce that the Christ child is born. That's what we do with a birth announcement. We tell other people, or at least we send a picture to the pastor, and he tells everybody on Sunday morning. They put it on Facebook, so that was safe this morning. But that's what we have here. It's the birth announcement of Jesus. But it's much more than that. This is much more than a birth announcement here. A birth announcement usually carries all the essentials of the birth of the child, the baby's name, the parent's name, where and when the child was born. And, and this birth announcement that we find in Luke 2 carries much of the same um, elements of a, of a normal birth announcement. It, it tells us when the baby was born. It tells us the day of his birth. Verse 11 says, for unto you is born this day. Whatever day that was, it was that day. It tells us the place of his birth. The city was the city of David, Bethlehem. It even tells us where in Bethlehem you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It tells us the baby's parents. It was Mary and Joseph. And although this birth announcement doesn't give the baby's name, it does give us his title. What was, who was it that was born on, in the city of David, he tells us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So many of the particulars that we see in a regular birth announcement, we find also included in this birth announcement as well about Jesus. But the angel's proclamation, the angel's announcement here was more than just a birth announcement. There are four pieces of good news here that we can celebrate, not just at Christmas, but all year long. And I want to give them to you this morning as implications of the incarnation of God in Christ. The first that we find here is fear not. We find it in verse 14. The angel says, first thing he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Fear not. That's a command. That's an imperative verb there. Don't fear. Do not fear. Now, if we put ourselves in the place of the shepherds, if we put ourselves in their proverbial sandals on that hillside outside of Bethlehem, 
they, they had a lot to fear. Nothing like this had ever happened to them before. There, there, there was nothing that, that gave them any kind of expectation that this was going to happen on this night. It was a quiet, peaceful night, just like many others outside of Bethlehem. The sheep were already asleep. They were probably already asleep or at least dozing off, huddled around the, fi- the campfire to try to keep warm with the chill of the night. And then out of nowhere, it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And beyond that, it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. So, I mean, imagine that. Uh, you're, you're, you're sitting on that hillside. You're minding your own business. You're minding the, the sheep's business. You're dozing off to sleep. It's like any other night. And then, boom, an angel of the Lord appears to you. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. So this was no little flashlight. This was the glory of the Lord showing around them. Excuse me. And then it tells us uh, later in verse 13, it says, And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. And so it started out with the one angel. I mean, if that wasn't startling enough, the one angel that shows out of nowhere, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and now an entire host, a multitude of the heavenly hosts. So we've got a bunch of other angels now showing up, and now they're singing a song in the middle of the night. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace with those with whom he is pleased. So it's understandable that they would have had a proclivity to fear. It would have been understandable that they would have responded in fear because there was much to fear. And yet the angel said, fear not. Don't fear. Even though fear seems to have been a natural and understandable response that they would have. We too have much to fear in our world today. We have lots of reasons that we can look around us and have a proclivity to give in to fear. We have the fear of economic failure. Just what, a couple days ago, government shuts down, right? So the government shuts down. So this, this thing that's supposed to protect us, we got, we got a couple of soldiers home on leave now. And guess what? Now they've got M4s and they're not paid for it. So now we've got the whole government is shut down. That could lead to fear, fear of natural disasters, fear of disease, fear of sickness, cancer, heart disease, fear of being alone, fear of the unknown, what the future might hold, fear of aging. You know, the older I get with each year, like things keep falling apart. Things just stop working like they used to work. And you know, it just leads me to think about what's next that's going to fall apart and what happens after that. Fear of aging, fear of failure, fear of being rejected, fear of losing your job, fear of financial ruin. We have a lot to fear. But, but these are what I would call lesser fears. Our greatest fear is death. And not so much death as in the end of life, but what comes after this life? What what comes after we finish this life? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us what comes after it. In Hebrews 9, 27, he says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, where we will have to give an account for everything in our life, everything that we have done, 
to a holy and righteous God. How would you like to do that right now? Given an answer, to give an account for everything you ever said, done, thought, or otherwise to a holy and righteous creator and sovereign God. Right now, let's go give an answer for that, right? It would be a tinge of fear. Writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, 27, tells us what sinners have to look forward to after our death. He calls it a fearful expectation of judgment. I think that's why some people get religious when something happens in their life that makes them realize the frailty of life. Whether it's an accident, some kind of near-death experience, maybe it's the death of a loved one, and they realize that this life is but a fleeting moment, frailty of this life. And, and, and a lot of times that leads po- folks to get religious and start doing things to perform for God, start going to church because they're afraid of the coming judgment. It pr- produces fear, creates fear in them. But the Bible says that we can't perform our way out of this fear. No amount of doing good will ever change the heavenly verdict against us that says that we are guilty and further says that we deserve judgment because of our guilt. And to face judgment, the judgment of a holy God without a redeemer, without an advocate, without a rescuer, is the greatest fear that any human could ever consider. But the angel here says, fear not. Now we know that in the context of this story, the angel is referring to the fear of the shepherds and what they saw and the glory of the Lord shining around them. But in a broader sense, the incarnation of God as one of us meant that God was keeping his promises to to bring about a means of liberation for those gripped by sin and death. Now we no longer have to fear sin. Now we no longer have to fear death. Why? Because the baby in a manger in Bethlehem became a king on a throne in heaven. And in between that manger and that throne was a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And because of what Jesus accomplished on that cross as our substitute, now we no longer need to fear sin or death or what comes after death. He paid for that if we place our faith in Christ alone. But but the incarnation of God in Christ also addresses these lesser fears that we deal with day after day. So I want to real quickly address that, four ways that the incarnation helps us fight those lesser fears. The first is very logical. If our greatest enemy has been defeated, then what have we to fear from lesser enemies? If our greatest fear has been abolished, then what have we to fear from these lesser fears? Nothing. Not a thing. Secondly, though, the incarnation of God more than anything else, was a grand display of God's love for us. And, and John tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that there is no fear in love. 1 John 4 verses 17 through 18 says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, when we struggle with fear, no matter what the source of that fear is, no matter what the cause is, our gaze should return to the manger. Because in the incarnation of God as man, we see the love of God displayed for sinners like us. If he loves us this much to send his only son from a perfect heaven next to him to a lost and dying world among sinners such as us to live among us, to live that righteous life that we could never live and then go to a cross to die in our place to pay the debt that we could never pay ourselves and yet we owed. If he loves us this much, then what have we to fear in life? Thirdly, the incarnation of God means that God is now with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And this God who came to be with us also promised to never leave us. So his very presence in our lives gives, gives us confidence that we have nothing to fear. The writer of Hebrews expressed this in chapter 13, verses five and six. He said, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, and then he quotes from Psalm 118 here, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And where is his confidence to say that? The promise that God will never leave us or forsake us. But then fourthly, the baby in the manger, is a, is, it's like a, a big neon sign that says God keeps his promises. And he promises to also sovereignly work everything out for our good and his glory. We saw this in Romans 8.28, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to purpose. Whatever it is, even something that may be causing you fear, God is still sovereign. He's still in control, and he's working that out for your good and his glory. So the Christ child in the nativity means that fear, the word fear is it's no longer a part of our vocabulary as believers in Jesus. Our greatest fear, the, the fear of answering to God for our sin that, that fear has been abolished because this infant grew to be our Savior. And not only has he defeated sin and death, but because he has done that, then all these lesser fears are done away with as well. So fear not. That's the first of the four implications of the incarnation that we learn about from the angel's proclamation. The second is rejoice. Instead of fear, we are to rejoice. Verse 10 continues, Fear not, why? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When you look at that, that verse in the original language, in the original Greek, that phrase, I will bring you good news, is one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word, uangelizomai. And when you look at that word transliterated in, into the English letters, it looks like the word evangelize, right? Because that's what it means. 
So we could say that the angels evangelize the shepherds. But what does it mean to evangelize? To, to uangalitsomai literally means to announce or to herald good news. In, in both the first century Jewish use, uses of that word as well as the first century Roman uses of that Greek word, it meant to announce or herald news of the kingdom, good news of the kingdom. So the good news that the angel refers to here is the gospel. It's what the word gospel means. It means good news. Now, normally the word gospel is used as a noun in Scripture, but here it's used as a verb. It's used as a verb in verse 10. This is the verb form of the word gospel. So really the angel said, I gospel you. I'm gospeling you. I love that. That's what we're told to do, believer. We're told to gospel our friends. We're told to gospel our, our neighbors. We're told to gospel our coworkers, to herald and proclaim good news, the good news of the gospel, to announce to captives that their release from the prison of sin and death has been bought and paid for at Calvary through Jesus' death on the cross. And this good news, he says, is good news of great joy. That word great is, the, is a Greek word, megas, and so literally it's mega joy. That's how we can read this. This is good news of mega joy. And what is the good news of mega joy? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is good news of mega joy, and it is cause for rejoicing. And why do we rejoice at this good news of mega joy? Because if we're all sinners, and we are, and if we all deserve eternal judgment, and we do, and If there's nothing that we can do to change that hopeless predicament, and there's not, and if we're hopeless in our mega fear, and we are, then this news about a Savior coming to rescue us from that mega fear is the greatest, most wonderful news of all. A hero, a rescuer, a redeemer has come to rescue us from what we deserve, to rescue us from our hopelessness. And this Redeemer, of course, is Jesus, Christ the Lord. Because we couldn't do anything about our hopeless predicament, and because no other man could do anything about our hopeless predicament, God had to come. And that is what the proclamation here by this angel to the shepherds, in essence, was saying. God has come. And he's come in the form of a baby. And though he is in the form of of a baby, he is Christ the Lord. He is God. He is the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is the Lord, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the rescuer of souls. This is great news of mega joy, and it's cause for rejoicing, believer. The point is, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this proclamation from the angel is one of great joy. And so, do you have that joy this morning? This Christmas season, do you you have that joy in your life, in your heart? Some of you might say, well, I don't really feel joy. And we know that, that during this Christmas season, it's a season for, for many of us, it's a season where we experience loss and pain and grief and sorrow. So we don't feel this. 
but we're reminded that joy is not so much a feeling or an emotion as it is a belief. It's a belief. Our emotions and feelings, they go up and down. They are dependent on the circumstances of life that go up and down as well. But joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Because joy is not a feeling or emotion. If it were, then Paul could not command the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice always. And again, I say, rejoice, always have joy, he was commanding them. He wrote that while he was in chains. But you can't command someone to have an emotion. You can't command someone to have a feeling. But you can command them, you can exhort them to embrace a truth, to have faith. The command to rejoice is a call to express our faith in a sovereign and good and gracious God and his work in sending his son Jesus to be a sacrifice for us. So this doesn't mean that we don't experience grief and sorrow and pain during the Christmas season or any time doesn't mean that we pretend to always be happy. It doesn't mean that we put on a plastic smile during Christmas time and say everything is peachy. But it does mean that in the midst of that grief and sorrow and pain and whatever else it is, there is an abiding and never ceasing joy. Joy, church, joy is the enjoyment or the delight in knowing and experiencing the Lord Jesus Christ today. And it is the confident assurance, the hope, if you will, of knowing that one day we will know him and experience him fully when we see him face to face. That's what joy is. So in the middle of pain and grief and sorrow, we know, we are confident that we belong to Christ that we are his, and that one day the pain and sorrow and grief and the suffering of this life will one day disappear when we see our Savior face to face. So there's supposed to be joy at Christmas, but what is the joy of Christmas? Let us remind ourselves, let us remind our families as we gather that the joy of Christmas is not presents and stockings and elves and Santa and food, as great as those things are. And we participate in most of those things. The joy of Christmas comes from the affirmation of good news that today in the city of David, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. So fear not. Secondly, rejoice. And then thirdly, this rejoicing should lead us to do what it led the angelic choir to do, and that is to glorify God. To glorify God. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the angels were praising God. They were worshiping God. They were giving glory to God. And church, so should we. So should we at this news. But I want you to think for a moment why the angels on this particular occasion, we're singing glory to God in the highest. Why, why were they singing that song, glory to God, on this particular occasion of God coming from heaven 
to earth to do something for sinners like us. See, angels are only concerned about God's glory, and they're not concerned about mankind at all apart from God's glory. But if God was coming down here to do something for man, which he was, then why does this lead the angels to celebrate the glory of God on that occasion of God coming to do something for us? Here's why. Because Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was all about restoring worshipers to worship the one who created us for his own glory. That's why he sent the baby. That's why he lived a perfect life. That's why he died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. So that he might rescue and reconcile and bring back to himself and restore to himself worshipers that he made for the purpose of worshiping him. You see, we were created to glorify God. A lot of people want to know, what's my purpose in life? That's it. I mean, I don't know the particulars of how that's going to get fleshed out for you and how God wants you to do it, but your reason for breathing oxygen is to glorify God. Whether you are now or not, that's your purpose for living. That's why God created mankind. But because of the stain of our own sin, we can't. We can't give glory to God because we're stained with our own sin. So what did God do? God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life so that through faith in him, we might have his righteousness credited to us and so that our sin might be placed on his shoulders as he dies for them on the cross so that we would be reconciled back to him and restored to be the worshipers that we were originally created to be in the first place. That's why he made us. That's why he remade us in Christ. And so that's why Christmas is such great news. You see, at Christmas, and all throughout the year, but especially at Christmas, this should be a great time that we glorify God. Now, what does it mean to glorify God? It's a great question. The glory of God is all about the display, the display of God's majesty and beauty and holiness. Glory is about display. It's about showing forth. It's about the, displaying the magnificence of who God is. That's what the glory of God is. And so if we're to glorify God, it, it's not that we add glory to God. We can't add glory to God. He's got an infinite amount of that. So to glorify God is not to add glory to him, but instead it's about displaying and extolling and exalting the magnificence of who he is. This is a word that gets to the very heart of worship. Because when we worship, whether it's singing or whether it's living for him, we are glorifying God. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. At the end of the story about the shepherds, what do we find them doing in verse 20 when they come back from having seen Jesus? It says in verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Church, that should be our response as well. Glorifying and praising God for all that we have heard and seen about who he is and what he has done. How are you going to do that? All year long, but most particularly in these next few days. As you gather with family, as your family gathers together and opens presents and 
eats a lot of food. How are you going to make this about the glory of God? How are you going to make your celebration of Christmas about displaying and extolling and exalting the magnificence and majesty and beauty and grace of God? Let us give ourselves to that because that's why we were made and that's why he remade us in Christ. Glorify God. And then the final thing that the angels announce was peace. So he tells them, fear not, rejoice, glorify God. And then fourthly, proclaim peace. That's what the angel does. They sing in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the announcement of the birth of Jesus was an announcement of peace, a proclamation of peace. But peace to whom? He says, to those with whom he, God, is pleased. So that begs the question, right? With whom is God pleased? Because we want this peace. With whom is God pleased? How, how, much, how much good do I have to do in order to have this peace with God? In order for God to be pleased with me? Well, the bad news is that you and I could never, God, God will never be pleased with us because of the good that we do. It doesn't matter how much good we do. You might do, do uh, more good than everybody else in this room. You might do, do more good than everybody else in Gwinnett County in the world. But you will never cause God to be pleased with you because of the good that you do. Paul made this abundantly clear in Romans chapter 3. He said, none is righteous. That word righteous means good enough. We've talked about that, right? Good enough for God to be pleased with you. He says, none is righteous. So none is good enough. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Look at this. No one does good, not even one. So none of us are going to make ourselves pleasing to God by our goodness. The prophet Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, the, 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 the attempts to be good, in other words, are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, that is our sin, like the wind, take us away. Great word picture. None of us is good because our sin is like a roaring wind that just blows us away. None of us are good. So none of us can be pleasing to God. So none of us have this peace with God. We will never be ones with whom God is pleased by our own doing. Instead, he is only pleased with those who come to him in faith and place their faith in his finished work on the cross and trust in his atoning, that means covering sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews eleven six: Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if we want to be those who are with whom God is pleased, it requires faith in Jesus Christ. So only those who have placed 100% of their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as their only hope, and that hope is a confident assurance that they will be rescued from what they deserve. Only those 
can agree with the Christmas angel here and say that they have peace with God. Because that's the only way that God will be pleased with us if his righteousness is credited to us and our sins are imputed to him. This announcement of peace, quite simply, is not peace to all men. It is peace to all those who have placed their faith in Christ alone. And those who have not placed their faith in Christ, Christmas is not a time of peace. It's just a cold, bleak winter day with no hope and no peace. Now, in our world, we might dress it up with all kinds of tinsel and decorations and presents and Christmas carols and decorations and all of the like. Put all kinds of lights around it. But without Jesus, without faith in Jesus, we are still at enmity with God. And the man or woman with whom God is not pleased cannot celebrate the peace that the Christmas angel proclaimed to the shepherds. Instead, they are still enemies of God. They are still opposed to God, independent of God, active in rebellion against him. Without peace, Merry Christmas is just a, an illusion. But peace with God is available. Peace with God has been purchased. Peace with God has already been paid for through faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't have this kind of peace, if you don't have this kind of joy that we're talking about this morning, this kind of peace will only come if you trust in Christ alone. So if you don't have this peace with God this morning, will you trust in Christ alone this morning? Trust in his finished work on the cross as your only and yet sufficient hope for rescue from the judgment that you and I deserve because of our rebellion against a holy God? Will you trust in Christ? Will you trust in Jesus as Lord, as Savior, as your Redeemer, your Rescuer? Peace with God is found no other way. He came to earth to obtain peace between you and the Father. Will you now, if you never have, will you come to him in faith? Coming to him in faith is simply an expression of your faith that you are trusting in Christ alone, that you desperately know that that you're a sinner, that you are hopelessly stained with sin, and because of that, you deserve eternity apart from him. But yet you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that the baby in the manger is the second person of the Trinity and that he grew up and lived a perfect life and that he died on a cross in your place, paying the debt that you owe, dying the death that you deserve to die. And so you place your faith in Christ alone as paying that debt for you. And you trust in him as your Lord, your rescuer, That is the only way to peace with God. That is the only way to this kind of joy. So church, Christmas is not a time of fear. It's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of glorifying God. It's a time of of enjoying the peace that Christ secured for us when he grew up and allowed himself to be nailed to a, a rugged cross. So let us set aside our fear this Christmas 
Let us set aside our fear and rejoice. Let us glorify the name of the Lord and delight in and enjoy our peace with God and then proclaim that peace to others around us so that they too might know that joy and know that peace themselves and bring glory to the God who created them for that glory as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this season that we're able to celebrate that in your sovereign, perfect, divine wisdom, you determined to make a way for sinful people like us, wretched, lost rebels like us, to be made new, to be turned from sinners into saints, to be turned from enemies into children, to be forgiven, to be reconciled back to you so that in our newness, in our state of restoration, we might be ones who bring you the glory that you deserve. So Father, those of us here in this room who know you, love you, Proclaim the name of Jesus as our only hope for rescue from certain and deserved judgment. May our Christmas celebration be one of joy, be one of rejoicing and and bringing glory to you, pointing to you. And may be a time of us delighting in and enjoying this blood-bought peace that the angels pronounce to the shepherds and that you pronounce over us in Christ. Be glorified in this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name.